KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 103.9 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams. Coming up on Bridging Philly, the attack on Ukraine has left the community here in Philadelphia with ties to the country reeling as they witness the land and its people in crisis. We're joined by the Honorary Consul of Ukraine in Philadelphia and the President of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America's Philadelphia chapter. Ukraine will win. It's just a matter of time for how many people actually we could save. Our newsmaker this week is doing what they can to aid those fighting in the attack. And no matter how tired I am, no matter how mentally hard and physically hard it can be sometimes to spend the whole days in here, this is what is right. Antoinette Lee has our Change Maker of the Week who's making a huge impact in the community. It's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Welcome to Bridging Philly. On February 24th, Vladimir Putin sent Russian forces into Ukraine. Shelling of various areas have continued. A maternity hospital destroyed, three dead, 28 wounded at last count as of this taping. A bridge that many Ukrainian civilians used to escape, destroyed. Ceasefire talks yielded nothing. More than two million people have fled Ukraine. And recently the House passed a trillion dollar package that includes aid to Ukraine. There is so much to talk about, but so much of it is, well, painful and Philadelphia's Ukrainian community and those here who have ties to Ukraine are hurting. Here to shed her perspective on this ongoing attack is Honorary Consul of Ukraine in Philadelphia, Irina Mazur. Welcome. Thank you. Good afternoon. Well, as I said before, there's a lot to discuss and so much of it we just can't wrap our heads around. Irina, I want to go back, though, before the attack. Describe for those of us who are unfamiliar with Ukraine what the country was like. I understand that it was really a beautiful place. Well, uh, Ukrainian uh, state was actually established centuries and centuries ago. It actually started as a cave on Rus, uh, and then it was an extremely prosperous and beautiful uh, country in entire Europe. It was a country that was a hub for all the point international trade. That, that was really one of the leading countries at the time. I'm talking about 10th, 11th century. Unfortunately, later, uh, when uh, the Moscow kingdom was established, there were actually tensions between the neighboring countries. Ukraine began to be invaded by Russian kingdom more often than Russian empire that was established took over Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainian Kazakh uh, kingdom was actually eliminated by the order of Catherine the Great. Uh, and essentially, that was the beginning of invasion of Ukraine, beginning of, I would say, actions of the Russian Empire to take Ukraine completely under control. Uh, Ukraine uh, actually formed as a country again, and it was even united because Eastern and Western Ukraine was actually two parts of like two separate republics. Uh, Ukraine was united as one country, proclaimed its independence, but um, unfortunately was took over again by then Soviet Union, transformed into uh, Ukrainian Soviet Republic. Ukrainian lands were actually divided, especially after the Second War, and Ukraine lost a lot of territory in the West, on North, and even some of the Ukrainian territories, formerly called Kuban, 
they became part of Russia. So not a lot of people actually know that Russia actually owns a lot of uh, territory that were historically Ukrainian territories. But the biggest problems for Ukraine as for country began actually when the Soviet Union was formed and Ukrainians were resisting. They were resisting this invasion by the Soviets. Uh, There were rebellions all over the country and it was a threat for the Soviet Union. Uh, Ukrainians always hold into their nationality and to their national identity. So for over centuries, it's not just possible to crush the, the desire to be free country. So when Stalin took over the Soviet Union, control over the Soviet Union, it was his primary goal to actually crush the Ukrainian identity. A number of artificial famines were orchestrated against Ukraine. It was estimated that more than 10 million people were starved to death. And then at that time, it was actually Soviet Union forces were taking every possible kind of food out of eastern Ukraine. And that's how it's ended, that a lot of Ukrainians were deported to Siberia. They were murdered in concentration camps, in gulags. They were starved to death. And especially what happened with eastern Ukraine, that at that time was a hub for Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian identity. Mm. Because currently, it is always considered that now the western part of Ukraine actually serves as a center of Ukrainian culture. But 100 years ago, it was complete opposite. It was actually in eastern Ukraine where uh, Ukrainian people were so aware of their identity and necessity to maintain this identity, maintain their culture and language. And it was completely crushed by Soviets by simply murdering Ukrainians in masses. So the genocide that we are witnessing right now took part really that the origin goes 100 years ago. Uh, and Ukrainians were killed in masses. Mm-hmm. Then at that time when Eastern Ukraine basically was completely devastated, that people were dying by hundreds, hundreds and thousands by days. Then Soviets started to move a lot of Russian population to the Eastern Ukraine. And this is actually the cause why so many people lived in Ukraine uh, after the Second War that had no connection to anything Ukrainian. They had no connection to Ukrainian history, Mm -hmm. culture, understanding of those national cultural values. And they just had a connection to the Soviet Union. And um, it was very hard for Ukraine to regain its independence in 1991. Uh, The first country that broke down from the Soviet Union was Lithuania uh, in 1990. And then Ukraine uh, proclaimed its independence and was able to have a peaceful transformation and separation from the former Soviet Union. Putin, basically, he he needs Ukraine and Belarus in order to form analogy to another Soviet Union or another empire that he is dreaming about. Mm -hmm. Um, And for him, Ukraine is a critical point because it's actually Ukrainians who keep that spirit of freedom and they transport it to as example to other nations. For example, little country Georgia was invaded by Russia in 2008, and there was no international response for such a brutal aggression against Georgians. But right now, uh, because Ukraine is a bigger country and it just drives a lot of attention, right now there's a lot of movements in the smaller former republics like Georgia Mm -hmm. that they finally are talking about gaining back those territories that are currently occupied by Russia, They're inspired by Ukrainians. There are other nations that look into Ukraine the way how Ukraine is fighting for its freedom because it's essential. What Ukrainians are fighting for, it's not just for the land. It's for their right 
to be free. Right. And that for me is a key point that how I connect Ukrainians and Americans, because this is such a close parallel, how American nation was fighting and struggling for their independence almost 150 years ago. That would be a democratic country, the country that would value basic human rights, right. the country that would provide opportunity for different nationalities to live together, for different languages to prosper, for different religions to be prosper. So it's a complete up. Everything that Ukrainians actually show and stand for, it's complete opposite that Russia has right now. And that's why Ukrainians continue to be a direct threat for the Russian government, because that spirit of freedom was always within Ukrainian people and will always be. That's why it will not be possible to defend Ukraine. Ukraine will win. It's just a matter of time. And it's a matter how many people actually we could save by intervening and providing Ukrainians all the necessary help. And the resolve and the bravery that you are describing is completely embodied in President Zelensky. This is a man who we are all to, we are all paying attention to as a prime example. Exactly. He was elected because people wanted to have a change. They wanted to have change from traditional uh, politicians. They were tired. They wanted, again, this is struggle to have freedom, even a hard time. But President Zelensky was actually, I did never felt before that he had those patriotic feelings like I actually have because I was growing in a very pro-Ukrainian family and um, I knew all the history. It was carried through generations in my family. For me, he was just a regular hot guy who perhaps maybe did not even care about so much of the Ukrainian maybe independence. I was I was questioning the choice personally. But again, he was elected by the Ukrainian people. Uh, we had to respect this choice. It was democratic elections. And I thought we have to all give him proper support. But then suddenly he emerged as a, such a leader that united entire Ukraine and entire world. He became example of somebody who does not just represent one nation. He represents every person, Ukrainian speaking, Russians, Jewish people, minorities, everybody in Ukraine, and even he's fluent in both languages. This is extraordinary example in one person to show how Ukraine is a country of many different nationalities, many different religions, many different opinions, but all of them are united in their struggle to have free and independent Ukraine that would be allowed to choose its own future. Irina, the shelling of a maternity hospital, that's just simply unconscionable. Can you describe the current conditions in areas in and around Kyiv right now? What is it like? Uh, yes, um, and I have to tell you that um, in my work every day, I turn on the news only when I finish my work. Uh, and usually it's 2 or 3 a.m., sometimes 4 a.m. daily. And the first thing that I turn on yesterday, it was President Zelensky's speech when he addressed the situation in Mariupol. And when you would watch that speech, you would see so much pain in his face, so much human emotions. You could see that this is the president who deeply feels the pain of his people. And he is not simply talking as a politician. He is speaking as a human being, as addressing the nation in the most human way. And um, when I received the information, what actually happened in Mariupol yesterday, I have to tell you that 
I couldn't even speak. I mm. could not, in my mind, it was, I could not comprehend what actually happened because I always knew that Russian government has no value for human life, not for Russian citizens that reside in Russia, not to other citizens like in Syria, in Ukraine, to no one. But in the 21st century, to bomb deliberately hospitals and maternity uh, hospitals in specifics, this is, I'm sure that Putin will be tried one day in Hague and he will answer for all those crimes against humanity, for that genocide that they engage against Ukrainian, Ukrainian nation and Ukrainian people. Talking specifically what is going on in Ukraine, I just have to tell you, I speak with my friends. I have a friend who actually lives in Mariupol. I hope that she is okay. I did not hear anything from her. Um, I have um, many clients who actually have relatives in eastern Ukraine. The situation is just horrible. You cannot describe the level of terror and the level of pain that they experience. Honestly, I, I'm losing my words because I have to tell you, it hurts me so much. I just spoke with my mom and uh, she was crying. She was really crying. She's in a good a safe location, but I have an uncle who is in her son. Uh, I have friends who uh, are sleeping in the bomb shelters in Kiev. I have clients who have families in the in those cities that were bombed to the ground. The amount of pain that every Ukrainian around the world experiencing right now is just unbelievable. I have to tell you that there is not a single Ukrainian American in our community and around the world who does not have family in Ukraine doesn't have friends in Ukraine. So the pain is extremely, extremely sharp and extremely crucial for all of us. But that's actually what drives us to work nonstop, drives all our diplomatic corps to work nonstop because right. we know that Ukrainian army is defending Ukrainian land. Ukrainians, regular citizens and civilians, they're forming in self-defense units. Even teenagers and children are helping um, men, women, uh, they all stand united for Ukraine, but they actually are looking for support from the West and from specifically United States. As I always say, they're willing and capable to defend Ukraine. They want to do it. They're ready. And you see that they're doing it. The results are amazing, but they don't have to worry about the amount of ammunition or amount of military supported um they just the support has to be provided to them right now if the support would be provided eight years ago we would not have this current situation it would not be escalated to this level if putin would be stopped eight years ago miss mazor let's talk about the outpouring of support that you've been seeing here in philadelphia as I said before, there are plenty of people in Philadelphia that have ties to Ukraine, perhaps even family in Ukraine, and people have been just feeling helpless but doing whatever they possibly can to help those who are fighting um, in, in this in this conflict. What else can we do? And, and tell me what you've been seeing. Yes, I've seen an incredible sense of unity, not only among the Ukrainian community across the United States, but also sense of unity among uh, the, the regular Americans. I live in the United States for 20 years, and this is the first time that I see one issue where almost everyone, I don't know a single person who would not show their support for Ukraine in one way or another. So this is extreme 
feeling of unity across of the United States and not only in the Ukrainian-American community. But all of the organizations that uh, were functioning for over, I don't know, last decades, Ukrainian-American nonprofits, and the ones who actually got established after 2013 and 14, we all just jumped and we worked tirelessly, nonstop, into providing humanitarian aid to Ukraine right now. So incredible amount of food, clothes, uh, all kind of uh, necessary needs for babies were already collected all over the United States. So at this point, we are even asking, please do, do, do not donate clothes uh, or food anymore because we still have to be able to ship all those donations. What Ukraine current, currently needs and desperately needs, uh, military support that they can get. This is number one. So if you can call your representative senator, actually both senators, uh, can call or write a letter encouraging them to provide any possible military and humanitarian support that would be appreciated very much because we are we are grateful for American government for what they did already, how they helped Ukraine. But it's important for our representatives in Congress to know that they are voters supporting their decision. So that kind of that's what I encourage people to do. Um, but another priority what Ukraine actually has right now, it's a humanitarian medical supply. Because at this point, even uh, cancer patients do not have uh, ability to receive proper medication. Uh, I know that a group of Ukrainian orphans who are cancer patients, they are coming to St. Jude Hospital to be treated on an emergency basis. But there are a lot of Ukrainian children and specifically orphans with specific needs that need specific medication, the insulin needed urgently. Uh, Ukrainian hospitals, which are operating in central and eastern Ukraine, they at this point, they don't have a basic medicine, basic medical equipment at this point that is necessary to conduct surgeries. So the situation is extremely critical. Well, I'm sure the support will continue and um, and hopefully this conflict will will end uh, sooner rather than later. Honorary Consul of Ukraine in Philadelphia, Irina Mazur, thank you so much for joining us today. I just want to express uh, our deep gratitude to the American government and to the American nation for all that level of support, compassion that you show to Ukraine and to Ukrainian people. I just want to tell you, thank you so much for standing with Ukraine. Thank you. We continue our conversation about the conflict in Ukraine and its impact on the Ukrainian community in our area as we welcome Eugene LeCue of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America's Philadelphia chapter. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, we just spoke with Irina Mazur, who was extremely emotional about what is going on in her homeland. And it's truly heartbreaking. You know, something like this has never been witnessed in real time by many people. First, could you tell me what you've been hearing uh, from the community in and around Philadelphia regarding this conflict? When you speak about the Ukrainian community, you have every conceivable emotion. Of course, there are people that are concerned about family and friends. There are people that are concerned about uh, the future of a nation which they love. Uh, We are all Ukrainian-Americans, 100% American, but we are also uh, 100% uh, Ukrainian. So we feel for the country and we want the country to be successful in its defense. This brings out all sorts of emotions. Uh, there's a Ukrainian poet by the name of Lesya Ukrainka that also says, you sometimes have to laugh through the tears because we're also heartened 
by the success that the Ukrainian military and the men and women, uh, those that are even fighting in the streets, have shown the resilience, the ability to meet this monstrous, monstrous attack and to set it back. You know, predictions were that they would set it, they would take over the country in Kiev in two, three days, a week at most. And here we are uh, 13, 14 days later, and they have only taken two cities in the south. Uh, cities that have been bombed mercilessly have withstood the onslaught and have pushed him back. Um, and that is a sense of pride, but the tears, the tears at maternity hospitals being blown up, um, uh, children's hospitals. St. Jude's took some children in because they brought, they, they, they brought down a pediatric cancer hospital. They want to, they're, they're destroying beautiful architecture. The threat is to blow up churches that have, date back to the 11th century and synagogues and, 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 and it's just basically to eradicate history even. Wow. So resolved is he to destroy, and in fact, in my opinion, punish the Ukrainian people for having dared to accept democracy and to step out of his darkness. I am in absolute awe and also fearful for uh, those people who chose to actually get up and go to Ukraine to fight. Um, and you were talking about the people of Ukraine, the resolve that they have and, and the, the bravery, mothers, grandmothers, models, actresses, all these different people picking up guns and fighting. It's unimaginable. Yes, uh, it, it is. I heard from the very get-go that these things would happen. And, you know, we had a prior example of this. When Ukraine was attacked eight years ago, so Ukraine has been at war on top of everything else for eight years now. Uh, Crimea was attacked and taken away because, again, they dared to have the Maidan rebellion and turn to Europe. Right. You're stepping away. So I'm going to take uh, Crimea, and then I'm going to take the eastern part of the Donbass, and I'm going to call it like I'm coming in to save people. Well, he destroyed those areas. The president who was ousted totally decimated the military. Ukraine had no military. The thing that held back the second largest army in Europe from its uh, intentions in Ukraine after the Maidan rebellion were people that volunteered. This is just history repeating itself again in a positive way, where, as you said, people of all ages, men, women, and young kids. And, you know, whenever we've had partisan movements, uh, when Ukraine tried to gain independence and various other times when it was captive. You had, you have stories of, you know, 14-year-old boys and girls and 13-year-old boys and girls serving as messengers. And it's just a heartbreaking experience. But again, you, as, as, as Lesha Ukrainka said, you, you laugh through the tears because the pride, but the sorrow, they, they just blend into this strange emotion. And I think that even Americans that I speak to share that emotion, you know, because they look at the Ukrainian people and say, wow, we could learn something. You know, this is the kind of, bravery and standing up and unity and we admire them and yet we feel that pain mm -hmm. and, and that's mm -hmm. the, that's the best way i can explain the emotion of it all yeah i'm wondering about preparations you know given the history uh, when putin started to move his uh, troops to the border for a so-called military operation uh, I, i'm wondering if uh, they they just knew that an attack would be imminent the minute that that's that began regardless of what he was saying it was for Yes, I, I, you know, it's it's interesting. If you, if you talk to people, I think the people were so used to this eight-year war and, and various threats and there were other gatherings. I, I think that 
my view is the majority of people kind of felt that it might not happen, hmm. but they were smart enough to be prepared for it. And one gambit that I hear people took is that, you know, the government wasn't going to concede and create panic. So they didn't even prepare. They prepared to do it quickly, the various obstacles that one would set up to, to, to the approach of tanks and, and the military uh, so that no, so there isn't a sense of panic before. Uh, but once the attack occurred, suddenly everybody was called to arms. And obviously they were ready. You know, Ukraine has been attacked over 440 times in its history. Mongols, Austro-Hungarian Empire, Polish-Lithuanian Empire, Russian Empire, Soviet Empire, the Ottoman Turks. So it's sort of we know how to be patient, to prepare. Once we're captive, we get ways of getting out of that captivity. I hope this doesn't happen again. You know what breaks my heart is I'm looking at some of the evacuation centers and you have the refugees and there's 2 million of them, 2 million people yeah. that are essentially homeless. Okay. That breaks your heart. But then when you look at it, as CNN reported, when you think about it, it's uh, it's women and it's women and children predominantly. So what does that mean? Now there's a lot of them. The Ukrainian military distinguishes itself with the bravery of its, of its female uh, soldiers. But in this calculus, we say the husbands are where? Right. So if they perish, there's a family that that is without a father. Um, if the Iron Curtain comes down, because that's what Putin wants. He wants to restore the Soviet Union. If that Iron Curtain comes down on the border, that family is split forever. So we've had examples of that. My, my parents came over after World War II. Refugees, just like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that Iron Curtain came down and you get severed from family. You get severed from your friends. And, 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 and we are going to be severed from our people, even here in the United States. And that's a very sad event. Very sad event. Um, I, I, look at, I look at the situation and, you know, I ask myself, why this level of brutality? Why, why do we reach this level of brutality? And, you know, that's, the, I think, I, I come to two conclusions. And one is almost strange to say, and that is that because Putin is frustrated. Somebody stood up to him. Mm-hmm. So out of strength. And now what does he do? Like a, like a child who, who, who has just lost the game or is getting ready to lose a game, starts destroying the game board, starts breaking things and smashing things and maybe even punching you, right? That's the brutality. And also it's punitive for you folks having dared to leave me to start with. Um, and and that, is a, that is going to be, a, it's, it's bludgeoning because of frustration. Right. Missed seven, over 700, not bombs and artillery, but missiles have been launched against the people. We're blowing up nuclear reactors. Right. That's, that's crazy. And who could have ever imagined it was going to happen in our time? And, and of course, uh, he, I, he, he probably didn't imagine that Zelensky would emerge as a hero, as he has I, been right now. You know, I smile because nobody imagined. <laughs> now, here's a guy who was a comedian, you know, doing like Saturday Night Live right. skits. And I even gave a lecture about Zelensky to a retirement home up in uh, Montgomery County. And, you know, we were all questioning whether Zelensky, would, uh, the courage and the leadership and the resolve. Uh, the State Department, our State Department called and said, um, no, we'll help you escape. He says, I don't need your, I don't need a ride. Yes. Yep. I, I need some some of those old planes. I can make use of them. I, I can use I can use uh, for you guys to maybe set up a no fly zone. 
I need you to be able to help me create some humanitarian corridors to get people out. Mm -hmm. I I need you guys to um, to give me military intelligence because I want to fight. I I need all of these types of things. I need your support. And uh, uh, the various things that you that you hear uh, in, in the press, you know, you need to stop targeting sanctions. Let's get let's get all of the banks, not just some of the banks. Let's cut them off completely. And you know what? Governor Wolf. Commonwealth of Pennsylvania takes the Russian vodka off the shelves and, and, and passes further legislation that or is about to pass legislation to divest the Commonwealth, divest all of our uh, state pension plans from all Russian assets. And uh, Governor Murphy's following suit. Right. No, no, no business relationships with, uh, with, with entities in Jersey that have relationships with Russia. That's what we need to do. We need to show that strength. You know, the, the, the problem is if we had done that eight years ago, that's the lesson learned. Well, let's talk about some of the efforts that are happening right here at home uh, that's aiding uh, the effort in Ukraine. There has been a huge outpouring of support. I mean, yeah, our gas prices are up. I think we're all pretty much saying we'll sacrifice that uh, right. you know, for the greater mm-hmm. good. But there are people that are, you know, grassroots efforts on the ground, you know, loading up boxes, trucks, doing whatever right. they can do, donating. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's all over the place. I know there are Ukrainian Educational Cultural Center. I mean, there are uh, ladies and gentlemen, there are packaging package after package. It's, it's just unstoppable. That's the Ukrainian National Women's League. So, uh, you know, the Ukrainian Educational and Cultural Center, if you go on their website, you'll see ways that you can help with providing these things. You know what? Personally, if, if you want to be effective, uh, a cash donation, okay, because they're giving up the items that are on the list. So that's great. But then you got to ship them and mm-hmm. pack them and it takes time. You can buy those things in Europe. So if I can make a personal plug for cash <laughs> over product, I'll do that. U-E-C-C Phila, P-H-I-L-A dot org. You get on the Cultural Center's website, you'll see a lot of uh, places to donate. Uh, Manor College uh, is uh, also is a Ukrainian heritage college. Uh, you get on Manor College's website, you'll see some things there. Uh, personally, my organization, Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, UCCA.org, you can find a lot of information about Ukraine there, about everything that we're talking about. There's a Ukrainian National Information Service page there, and you'll get all the action items, like how you can talk, you know, what you should call your congressman about, your senator. Like, I want to help Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I think Ukraine needs that no-fly zone. I think Ukraine needs to have all of its oil shut off. Please have the uh, you know, please have our European allies uh, go be thorough with that. Uh, we can all help in this way. The humanitarian aid, that's where you'll find uh, all of those websites. You'll find uh, links to that. One final thing is there's a wonderful uh, humanitarian aid society. It's been in the city of Philadelphia on Cotman Avenue uh, since the 1940s. And that's the United Ukrainian American Relief Committee. The Metropolitan Opera, our Philadelphia Orchestra, uh, dedicating uh, the Fiddler on a Roof series to, to Ukraine, uh, on and on and on, and, and various uh, performing groups and concerts, many of them starting with the Ukrainian National Anthem. Uh, we recognize a little bit of what's going on here. We've been talking with Eugene LeCue of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America's Philadelphia chapter. You can go to the website if you'd like to get involved and uh, perhaps uh, participate in donations and the like. Eugene, thanks so much for your time. appreciate it. Thank you very much for having. It was a wonderful experience. Thank you for sharing. 
The volunteers at the Ukrainian Educational and Cultural Center in Jenkintown have been working tirelessly in a coordinated effort to collect aid and donations to ship throughout Ukraine. Sharaday Howard tells us more. As the people of Ukraine stand against Russian forces, support for them grows around the world. And right here in our area, Ukrainians stand in solidarity with family and friends overseas. Helping in that effort, Diana Karnuda, originally from Kiev, now in the U.S. for just two years. She's helping to bridge communities from Philadelphia to Ukraine, coordinating hundreds of volunteers through the Ukrainian Educational and Cultural Center in Jenkintown. Along with friends, family, neighbors, and allies, she's been working day and night, sending supplies, food, food, and a little faith back home. Welcome to Bridging Philly, Diana. Now, how did you get involved in all of this? I got involved through one woman from my church. She said that the Ukrainian center needs volunteers to help out sort and pack stuff. And I came only just as volunteer. It's been a couple days after the war just started. And then after two, three days, one of coordinators asked me to be another coordinator just to help out and organize the stuff because they didn't have enough people. Organize people, organize the process to help people sort stuff, back stuff, just making sure everything is done correctly. You've only been in the States for about two years now, and essentially your entire family and support group is back in the Ukraine. You look back home, you see what's going on now. What goes through your mind? There is nothing technically goes through my mind, mostly from my heart, because I've been there, it's my homeland. It's really hard to see how my country is being destroyed, my city where I grew up being destroyed, how my relatives and friends are in fear of being dead. Bombing and shelling that is not supported by anyone in the world and is prohibited. And I don't think it's a normal thing. It's atrocious thing that's what is going on right now. And your family, have you heard from them? I have my grandparents there, my uncles and aunts and my cousins. And also I have a lot of friends from there. You see the news, you see the pictures, you hear the sounds. What are you feeling right now? I would say it would be probably pain because it's really painful and hurtful to see what's going on and how, you know, you always text, how are you? And right now it means more, I love you. Because you always check up on your, each single day, you just wake up, you go through your phone for the news and you check up on your friends and family just to make sure they're alive. And it's really you're in anxious state because you don't know what's going to happen next, whether or not they're going to be alive. But also it's, it hurts to see so many people in pain. And although you live here in the States, you said Kiev will always be your home. Yes, in my heart, Kiev will always be my home. Ukraine will always be my homeland. If anything, the Ukrainian people, Ukraine has shown that it's the little country that could. And you say that's not a new thing. So Ukraine is one of the most ancient, actually, countries in Europe. It's been strong, it always had strong military. And Ukraine always was a shield for Europe from Russia. Because Russia, most of the history, Russia tried to invade more territories and get more territories. But Ukraine was always a shield. We always were protecting them from all of the bad things. And right now it's really hard to see how, yeah, they help us. They send us help that and aids that we're extremely grateful for. But sometimes we need to have, you know, military help also. What are you hearing from people back home? What do they need most right now? At least weapons, more weapons, jets we need of airplanes. And it's really hard to get them now. And I understand all the politics and stuff, but a lot of people are dying and it has to stop. And essentially you're saying put people above politics, right? 
Definitely. It's, it's not our country tries. Our government right now is amazing. They try to do as much as they, they can. But we need different governments from different countries, from Europe, from America, to stand with us. And not only with sanctions and different stuff, economics. We need them to stand with us and send us more weapon help and military help. And you said the people are putting up such a fight because it's built in the DNA of the Ukrainian people. Because we have extreme willpower. We are all for freedom. And we have always protected our freedom. We're always free. And we always have our culture saved, being safe from different enemies, from different invaders. We're always standing together. We're united. And our spirit is just amazing. And at this point, you say, why stop now? This is the point in which you really stand up and stand in solidarity together. As Ukrainians, we have this free spirit in our hearts, in our souls. We're just Ukrainians, and that's what differentiates us from everyone else. And right here at the community center, a lot of this effort has been coordinated by women. And you look back home at the Ukraine and you're noticing so many women standing up and fighting back alongside the men and helping to coordinate the resistance. And given that it's Women's History Month, it makes it all even more powerful. How does that make you feel? Proud. I'm a woman myself and I feel extremely proud for women in Ukraine. They're standing up. They're not afraid. We have never been afraid. And right now, I believe that a lot of people... Men and women are equal right now on the battlegrounds in Ukraine. They're all equal. Women are stepping up as doctors, as volunteers for humanitarian aid. Some of them even goes to military and protect our country on the, in the battles. Brains, brawn, and spirit, clearly. Our women are amazing. You know, I really feel sorry for Russian men and military who dare to stand on Ukrainian field on the land of Ukrainian women because we're really strong. And when you get on our nerves, you are getting the revenge for it. You're so passionate about all of this. I can see it in your eyes. I can hear it in your voice. Tell me, why are you doing this work at the community center now? I do it only because I know it's right. I know in my heart, I just, when I got to know about all of this stuff, what's happening, I knew I need to help and I tried to find a way how to help and I found it. And no matter how tired I am, no matter how mentally hard and physically hard it can be sometimes to spend the whole days in here, this is what is right. This is what I can do from here. I can go and fight because I never fought before, but I can find, fight in here. I can provide help. I can organize people. And we can just be a help for people in Ukraine, even if we're in America. And Kyle Kovalenko is one of your volunteers. Kyle, why is being here important to you? I'm here to help people of Ukraine because, uh, you know, there's, there's a war going on and I, f I feel like they need some help one way or another. So you personally, how does this touch you? Well, my dad's from Ukraine, actually. He, uh, he came to America in 91 and um, I still have family uh, over there. They're uh, trying to get out, but it's really difficult for them. So me not being able to go out and help physically in Ukraine and said I'm doing what I can here in America with the uh, abundance that we have here. You know what I mean? I do. And I look around and I'm noticing that I see it's unity, it's solidarity, it's community. You've been in here day and night for the past few days packing these boxes. When you look around you, what do you see? I just see unity. I mean, I, th I think you put it in an excellent way. Just, um, you know, all these people come together for the same collective cause of helping out people 
back in the homeland. And, you know, my dad always stressed, you know, you gotta just like, you know, fight for what is right. And right now what we're doing is right. It is what is the right thing to do at this time. People here grew up in Ukraine, at least I, most of them did, all of them, right? Some of them, yeah. So like most of them grew up in Ukraine. Like I, and I just, I was born in St. Luke's, right? So it's like a very different, but like at the same time, like I want to get, I want to immerse myself because that's who I am. That's, that's how I view myself. And to be here, you said it's a blessing of sorts. Why do you say that? It truly is a, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say it's a blessing to be here, but it is a good thing that I am here doing what I can for my people. About the Ukrainian culture, what touches you the most? What makes you feel so connected to it? What do you want people back in Ukraine to know? If people can receive the gifts that we give them and just accept our support and, um, you know, and, and they have the willpower to, to fight back against this animosity, I mean, that'll be... That'd be terrific. I mean, I just want them to all survive. I mean, I look on the news and I see, you know, so many civilians killed and, you know, like my godfather, one of his relatives got got bombed. It's just anything that could help all these people in this war-torn country will be terrific. And I'm, I'm doing the best I can. It's difficult because I have all these thoughts about what I want to say, but to put into actual words is very difficult. But just uh, know that the people have more power than you think. You as an individual have more power than you think against this uh, bureaucracy. And Diana, we're talking about unity across oceans. That's what I'm seeing here. That's definitely across oceans, across nations. People are just like-minded and they're united. That's great to see that. It's wonderful. And I've noticed so many people here that aren't even Ukrainian. They're just here in support. They want to lend a hand. When you see a lot of Americans, a lot of different nations and different people of different nations coming in here, sometimes it actually makes you cry because it's amazing to feel this love and support from all of these people. This is an age-old story. This is David and Goliath. It's definitely the same situation. And when people are standing on their knees, a nation who stands on their knees... Uh, before the government will never defeat the nation who stands on their knees before God. And Ukrainians standing before God on their knees. We see governmental structures, governmental persons speaking about God and seeing God's word work in our lives in this situation. Everything just... Just have faith. Definitely. Faith is the most important what we can have now. Praying is our best weapon. I know God is on the side of righteous people. And right now, everything we do is just protect our land. And this is right. So God will stand with us. So what's your message to family and friends back in Ukraine? I understand that it's extremely hard. And I can't imagine how hard it is for you guys. But please hold on a bit. We're going to sell more help. We're going to help you out more. We're gonna put more money into it, more effort. We're gonna stay here and be as start as you're there. We're gonna put as much effort as you're putting there. And most most importantly, we're gonna pray for you and God will stand with us. Thank you so much, Diana, for being here. Now, if you'd like to find more information about how you could help or make a donation, go to kywnewsradio.com. For Bridging Philly, I'm Charity Howard. 
At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devro Advanced Behavioral Health. I'm Kim Wadabi's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. Now, I had the opportunity to visit this place a couple of months ago. It's right across the bridge from Philly. It's a place called Lawnside, New Jersey. Now, many people may not be familiar with this small town. It's actually less than two square miles, but this place holds a lot of history. Our Changemaker of the Week, Linda Shockley, is bridging communities by helping keep that history alive. Tell us about uh, the historical significance of Lawnside, because this is right across the bridge for us. And it really has so much significance. And many people are unaware of that. Yes. This community was organized in the early 19th century. We have uh, people here who trace their families to folks who escaped along the Underground Railroad from slavery and settled in this community. Um, It had a strong African Methodist Episcopal Church uh, around it, and also uh, proximity to members of the Society of Friends who manumitted people that they had enslaved and also became uh, very active abolitionists. And so one of those abolitionists was Peter Mott, right? Tell us about Peter Mott and the Peter Mott House. Peter Mott was a preacher for the AME Church, it's called Snow Hill Church at its inception and eventually became Mount Pisgah African Methodist Episcopal Church um, and following uh, the Reverend Bishop uh, Richard Allen from Philadelphia. And so he took people in his wagon to the Friends or Quakers in Haddonfield and in Morristown, which would be uh, Burlington County today. So we have families who can tell us the stories of their ancestors and who have also been able to document them. As a matter of fact, a smiling family settled here in the early 1800s. They were freed by their enslaver in Virginia and came to New Jersey, settled here and became um, really leaders of the community. As a matter of fact, Charles Smiley wrote a book, the only book about Lawnside, called A True Story of Lawnside that was published in 1921. So that's a proud heritage that we uh, promote and that was taught to us in school by our teachers, some of whom were descendants of families who escaped to freedom. I think it's so interesting because, you know, until a few months ago when I first visited the house, I, I had actually never learned this in school. What kind of education is being done to sort of bring more awareness to this important historical place right here in our region? Well, we're using uh, Zoom, <laughs> like many organizations are. So we're putting on programs and inviting people to register and sign up. Uh, for instance, to hear from the Smiley family, 
we're going to have another program with the families that uh, of uh, former mayors of the town. Uh, Lonside was incorporated by the legislature in 1926 and became at that point the only incorporated African-American municipality north of the Mason-Dixon line. That's a, a, a milestone in itself. Other communities are in, in the South in Mississippi and Florida and um, North Carolina. Um, and then you look further to the West to places like uh, Nicodemus, Kansas and so on. Um, but uh, we're, we're pretty singular in that we're um, a self-governing community of African-Americans uh, dated to 1926. And, you know, I know that you all have encountered some challenges, the city itself and, and the house, right? So tell us about um, those challenges. You know, well, the house is 176 years old. So it was built in around 1845. And having it placed on the National Register of Historic Places is an honor, but it also requires following the standards of the Secretary of the Interior. So nothing can be made of vinyl or uh, plastic or aluminum or any of those kinds of things. So we have to be very careful. Our roof is uh, wood cedar shingles. Uh, after 20 years, uh, they need to be replaced. The siding is wooden. That needs to be painted repeatedly and in some cases repaired and replaced. The windows, the doors, and the, the bulkhead doors all need that attention. And recently, um, our uh, furnace uh, was not functioning properly or safely. So we had to um, replace that as well. Um, and all of these things cost money. So the construction on the house amounts to about $100,000. And then there's the additional cost of the uh, heating and air conditioning system, which will be any uh, up to $20,000. And in light of COVID, we want to make sure that we have the right uh, kinds of systems in place to handle and clean air in the event and when we do reopen to the public so that people can actually tour the house. So we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of, of dollars in, re in repairs that are needed. Um, really to, to save this house and to keep it operated and to keep it around. So you all have had some assistance. Um, uh, yeah. Tell us about that. So we've received funding. Uh, we have a matching grant from the New Jersey Historic Trust, which is um, funded by taxes, state money. And that is a, a matching grant. So we have to expend money in order to get uh, money back in order to keep uh, moving the project forward. We also have corporate support, um, UPS supported us, uh, public service, electric and gas, uh, New Jersey American Water, uh, Edmund Optics. Um, we've also received support from the Camden County Cultural and Heritage Commission. And we're waiting for a word on a COVID-19 grant um, from the uh, county. Camden County through the American Rescue Plan. We've also received money from the New Jersey Council for the Humanities as, and, and uh, other foundations like the Hyden Watson Foundation uh, too. So we're uh, grateful for that. We're grateful for the corporate support. And we're also struggling to hold on to our identity. 
Um, so many things are happening in terms of uh, development, um, people aging out of the community, because we do have very old families, you know, when you move into suburban areas and older communities, you start to have those shifts and changes. So there's a lot of house flipping going on um, and all of those kinds of things that make it um, difficult or a struggle for organizations and, and to establish our identity. So um, we hope to keep educating people out in the community as to the history and the heritage, even as they come to the town. Because some people frankly don't, don't know the history. They just think it's a nice suburban community to come and settle in. And um, yeah, with all of the assistance that you have had, you're still, you still need more money, right? Oh, um, yeah, particularly with this house, because it means so much to people. It was, it was a safe haven. It was a harbor for people who were escaping the horrors of slavery and, and the lack of freedom and self-determination. So uh, we need to plan uh, in, in perpetuity for its care and you know you said something important that this is this is a really important place it was a place of refuge um and it has all of this in in essence and significance and right here in our region what is at risk if we if you were not to meet this goal and be able to raise this money to keep the longevity um of this place going well, I don't want to put that in the atmosphere, but there, there, there were documentaries I remember as a child talking about African-American history. And one of the programs uh, subtitled was Lost, Stolen, or Strayed. And, and we just don't want to lose anything more. We don't want to lose uh, any uh, tangible things, certainly but also the intangibles, these stories. So we, we have to do the oral histories, but we also have to have places and landmarks that people can see that testify to this history. One of the things that um, uh, Dr. Cheryl LaRoche said when she came here to look at Underground Railroad sites and to speak about the topic was the Peter Mott House is a towering monument. It stands tall. By comparison to some of the monuments that um, memorialize enslavers and people who oppose freedom, this is one of the few towering monuments that we have that celebrates freedom as opposed to celebrating enslavement and bondage. And so it's, it's really important that we keep it alive and that we think about different ways that we can use it. And we couldn't use it if it weren't here. We couldn't use it if there were just a plaque on the street. And, um, uh, you know, we wanna, put, we wanna have plaques and we're grateful to have uh, historical markers and signs on the grounds, but we want the grounds there. You know, one side, as I said, is only 1.6 square miles, but we have, in addition to the Mott House, the Mount Peace Cemetery, which is a resting place for over 100 uh, Civil War soldiers, 
And we have our um, elementary school that was built in 1915. It's a beautiful uh, classical brick building where generations of people went to school. So these things are um, all around us, but if we don't tell these stories, then there's a possibility that this history could be erased for generations to come. Um, and we certainly don't want uh, that to happen. So tell uh, people how they can find out more about, um, you know, the Lawnside Historical Society and the Peter Mott House. Um, how can they find out more? They can find out more by going to www.petermotthouse.org. They can donate on our website. Uh, they can use uh, PayPal. Um, they can make contributions directly to us, and they can also uh, send uh, checks to uh, Lawnside Historical Society, P.O. Box 608, Lawnside, New Jersey, 08045. We also have a phone, 856-546-8850. We're excited about our website because it's had that redesign. We think it's a really functional People can go on there, join our mailing list, uh, register to attend our monthly meetings. Uh, we meet online on Zoom and they can register uh, for these meetings that are usually on the second Thursday of every month. They start at seven o'clock and it's a real easy process. And um, we just hope that a lot of people will avail themselves and get to know this history. And the, and the connection, of course, against your program is called Bridging Philadelphia and, and the important role that Philadelphians played from the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee to encouraging people who were free and living in Philadelphia because they wanted to own land, come here, come here. So send us messages um, and look at our website and we'll be glad to accommodate people we appreciate all your support. Well, that's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. If you know a person, place, anything making a difference in your community, let us know. We're always looking for our next changemaker. You can tweet me at A-R-L-E on air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on air. And please, of course, subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shower Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>